Welcome back. Welcome to Decision Space, the only show that takes place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Jake Friedman. And I'm Brendan Hansen. And this is the podcast about decisions in games. So today, Brendan, we are revisiting Tigris and Euphrates, a game that should be very familiar to all of our listeners because it is the same game we covered last week. So this is our first ever part two game discussion. Uh, and maybe before we get right into the meat of this episode, which in which we're going to try and really stick closely to our decision space lenses uh, and really try and pull apart the decisions in this game, uh, maybe we should just spend a few moments talking about like why we are doing this part two and why for this game in particular. Yeah, I think that's a really good idea, Jake. I feel like part of the reason is that Tigris and Euphrates and the decision space is so unique and so, not unique, but compared to most of the games that we cover, there's certainly other classic hero games that have decision spaces that feel similarly to Tigris and Euphrates. But I think so many of the core tensions that the game is built upon create decision-making moments that are... Uh, that basically invite players into situations where the right decision really varies. And a lot of the games that we cover, I think, don't have decision points that vary as much as what might be the right decision at a given point in time in a given game based on everything that's happened up to that point as much as Tigris does, which makes untying the complexity a little bit more difficult and I think gave us the desire to sort of want to really jump into the boots of Tigris and Euphrates and spend time walking in its shoes. Does that kind of, do you think that speaks to it? That's right. And also I think another aspect of this game that we mentioned on the last episode is that, you know, it is somewhere between most of the board games that we cover on this show. Most of the games we think of as yeah. modern board games and a game like chess or a game like go. And, and some people have reached out to us uh, kind of saying, a lot of the conversation that we had last week reminded them of the same type of conversation that happens around new players getting into Go for the first time. Mm. Because of the position that Tigris and Euphrates sort of fits in on that spectrum between modern board games and these like really classic abstract games, makes it feel like when we're sitting down to like, like almost like we're saying like, Here's a one hour podcast where we're going to talk about all the decisions in chess. Okay. And then we start out and we're like, okay, so you want to like move this pawn here early in the game. And it's like every single thing you would do in chess is so predicated on so much more complexity than simply like moving your pawn forward to the middle square. Um, and I feel like that same thing is happening here in Tigris. Right, where we want to be able to speak definitively about certain decision points in the game or make claims about the systems overall, but that's really difficult when it's tough to feel like an expert in a game of Tigris Euphrates, even after putting in, I you know, playing approaching 50 games for me, and I know a bunch for you, and hours spent discussing the game, because this is the sort of game you could devote a lifetime to playing. And I think that you could... If this sort of became your lifestyle game, unpack the decisions forever in a game like chess or Go, which some people in our Discord have sort of posited, I wish that Tigris and Euphrates had this sort of scholarly analysis of decisions in it, like chess and Go do. And it seems like a game that is positioned to do that. So I think we felt we wanted to just give it at least an extra hour, dig into the epic decision space of this game. And we are going to do our best to do that. Um, really short housekeeping note before we dive into that conversation. We're going to skip our our normal sort of capsule reviews, slogans, and ratings, which we did on the previous episode. Um, and But one thing you should know is next week we're going to be doing our first ever community questions episode where we're asked, answering your questions that you have. Um, if you're listening to this early on after it's been released, there will still be time to get your questions in. So you can do that in our Discord, in our email inbox, on Twitter, and we'll have links to all those spaces in the show notes for this podcast. So Brendan, with that out of the way, should we jump into our actual decision space analysis of this game? 
Let's do it. Jake, I want to talk to you about the type of decision space. So often when we use discussing the type of decision space that a game has, that sort of lens that we developed in the first year of the show to talk about, does the decision space wax over the course of the game? Does it grow? Are there more decisions uh, later in a, in a later turn of the game than there are earlier on? Does it wane? Do your does it, the decision space shrink as time goes on? Is it dynamic? Is it growing and shrinking? Or is it fairly static, uh, staying about the same size as you play? And I think Tigris and Euphrates is a really interesting case study for that lens, because I think based on the, the board state is waxing, the number of spaces that you could feasibly play your pieces to as the game goes on grows and then shrinks as the board gets cluttered with pieces, right? But in terms of your goals, your objective of what you need to do, I think that the decision space certainly waxes and then wanes pretty quickly, which is a kind of interesting shape for the game. As it becomes clear that you really need to get X or you know red or blue uh, cubes to get your victory point score up. What do you think, Jay? For me, playing this game, and we just, before recording, did a live play, and I was thinking about this, uh, and I think for me, like the dominant mode of the game is a waxing decision space. I think that's like the general feeling I get. Um, certainly, as you say, as the board builds out, you just have more options of where to place your pieces, your tiles down onto the board. Um, so that is very clearly a waxing decision space. But also, I think later in the game, you may have fewer position like legal open spaces again at a certain point, you're going to hit that critical mass where, okay, well, last turn I had 50 legal placements or whatever, and now I have, you know, 35, so that's less. Maybe 50 is too much. Um, But even when it starts to wane, there's more things out on the board that you can interact with that makes it still feel kind of like a more dynamic uh, decision space uh, or kind of a, sorry, dynamics is a poor choice of word, but like still, a, I feel like an ever growing decision space down until like the very last one or two turns of the game. I feel like a big part of that too is the important information, even if the number of spaces is growing, the important information positionally has shifted, right? As the game goes on, monuments are being added to the board, which is changing the value of playing into certain kingdoms or treasure is being taken off the board as kingdoms come together. So I feel like that's part of the waxing nature of it too. And then at some point in the game, there's also the time horizon of well, you're always doing the, the consideration of how long is this game going to be? And if you're in the, the lead, you then have the decisions of maybe I'm going to cycle really aggressively or go towards war really aggressively. One other point that I think I realized, Jake, in using this sort of lens and thinking about, is this really a waxing decision space? Is it a waning decision space? Is that we've talked in the past about how your favorite games are typically punctuated waning decision spaces where there's this uh, like castles of burgundy where your board is filling up over the course of the game so you have fewer places to add your new tiles but every round you get this influx of new information um and while tigris and euphrates doesn't have that it emulates it in a way as tension in certain board states will build up and build up and build up. And then like in the game we were playing, Jake, maybe one player will end up sort of forced into a corner. A war has to happen at some point. It it just does because the player gets stuck. So the war happens. And then there's this like influx of a fresh board state where player kingdoms get split up and players can gobble at the pieces. So in those ways, Tigris, I think organically, though it doesn't have rounds, it almost feels like there's these different discrete ages of a game, right? Like where in the game we just played, there was a real opening phase. We had these huge mid-game wars uh, that reshaped the whole decision space. The mid-game was struggling for the remnants of the two kingdoms. We were playing a two-player game and we only built two kingdoms. The remnants of those two kingdoms who could jockey for for the better position after these two big wars. And then the end game where monuments came down and we're struggling for position over that end game state, trying to see who can eke out the right amount of points. So in some ways, and I think different games of Tigris have more ages or rounds than others, which is just such a unique aspect of the decision space in this game. Yeah. And I don't know how that fits into this framework. It's, I think like another case where in some ways, uh, Tigris just pushes back so hard against, a lot of these uh, common frameworks that that seem to fit so well when we're applying them to a more traditional modern board game. Because you're right. And I think 
one of the things we'll keep coming back to in this episode is that each an individual game of Tigers and Euphrates might play out totally differently than a different one. Uh, so you can certainly imagine a game with uh, fewer acts as you're describing it. And, and perhaps the game is defined by building up and building up and building up and building up until a war only finally happens like towards the end. And that might feel like the game had a, a more waning decision space, right? Where it's like, oh, there's only like fewer and fewer profitable things I can do before I'm like forced to go to war, which I really don't want to do. Um, you know, so you could, you know, so in that way, uh, it, it would that it would feel almost opposite of kind of what I'm putting forward as as the dominant type of decision space. But I think by and large, playing this game out seeing the board grow and change, seeing more and different ways you can interact with it, right? Like you're saying at a certain point, you'll start considering discarding. Uh, you won't use your uh, catastrophe tiles in the first turn of the game, certainly. Uh, but as the game starts getting rolling, those will be options that become more available and important to you. Though, of course, that is a waning resource. So that's an important caveat to throw out there too. Um, but yeah, I agree. It's to, to your point, it's an interesting one. <laughs> I think that I guess one big distinction that we could make as we leave is I think the board feels waxing. The decision space on the board itself is, is growing over the course of the game. And that's just by like, as a fact, right? There's more tiles coming down. So there are more places that you can place, but a lot of the inputs into what we're going to do on the board, I think are waning, right? The tiles are decreasing as the game goes on, which is important because if you see a certain color being played more quickly than others, the opportunity of getting those without building monuments to get income from them uh, diminishes, right? If, if early on a bunch of green hands get discarded, there's only 30 green tiles in the game. So that can give a waning feel towards the, and the tension that comes along with a waning decision space often, because all of a sudden you're like, oh gosh, all the green tiles are already out. If someone wants green, they're going to have to build a monument to get them. Or maybe, you know, there's four left in the bag or something out of the 30 overall. So I think that the reason why we're struggling a little bit here is it's, it is sort of both. The, the resources that flow into the decisions are waning, but the decision space on the board is waxing, which is a really interesting combination. Right. And of yeah. course, too, maybe at the, towards the end of the game, all you care about is green points. Right. right. So instead of at the beginning of the game, when you're kind of keeping yourself open, trying to score points in all different categories at the end of the game, if you've got 15 red, 15 blue, 15 black and three points in green, your whole decision space is like, oh, dear God, like, how can I possibly get any green points this turn uh, or, you know, or or plan to get green points in the immediate future? Uh, so that could feel like waning as well in all of these things are going to come back to your choices that you've made thus far in the game. And of course the collective choices made by the table. So I think, you know, so maybe we call it dynamic. It can be anything. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think that that actually probably does fit it pretty specifically as players can end up in positions where they really don't have decisions, right? They're in a position where they have to be getting red points. The only way to get red points is by placing red tiles down onto the board. There's no monuments out. They don't have a way they could feasibly build monuments. I guess you're discarding your tiles to try to get red tiles. And that's just the way that the game state can go sometimes. Um, I, yeah. I, I don't know. What do you think about the the feel of the de or the the size of the decision space here, Jake? Because I think it's just massive, right? This is a huge decision space in terms of si breadth and depth. There's just a lot going on. Yeah, definitely. And I don't want to like linger too long here because I think like a lot of what we did in the last episode is sort of talking about, about in this. very like general terms, like the right. feel and clarity of the decision space. And I think like what we can say about that here. Uh, is that it is something that really changes the more you become familiar with the game. Yeah. Um, I think the experience of a newer player is a, could be very often just like, I'm just putting down tiles to get points in different colors and like not able to see much beyond that. And th that makes the decision space feel like, can, can feel like relatively small. Mm -hmm. um, but the more you become experienced with the game, the more you realize the actual variety of options you have at, in any given turn. Uh, I, I do tend to agree with you that once, you know, 
played with experienced players, it's a it's a large decision space game like Go, like chess. You know, if we're saying it's close to that, that spectrum uh, of, of games, I think that is inherently saying something about the decision space being large. One thing that I think emphasizes this point, and then I agree we should move on to, is just as many games as we've played now, I feel like I only know enough to know I don't know that much about the game or certain aspects of it. Like the tile placement aspect and how where you place certain colors of tiles based on the kingdoms that are built on the board and where leaders are really, really matters. And I try to take it into account as much as possible, but I know there's so much more that I could be doing factoring those decisions into my play. Um, and that for me is one of the real fun things about the game. For sure. Yeah. A lot of people kind of responding to the last episode where I was saying like, it's really frustrating as a new player because you fight all these wars and then you're devastated for the whole game. They're like, well, that's because you're like building your kingdoms wrong. Like you should be considering, you know, the structure of your kingdom so that when you do lose a war, you're not completely blowing up everything that you've done so far. And it's like, oh yeah, like I hadn't thought about that at all. <laughs> like I should probably like consider that, which you know, is a great point by them and also speaks to like, as a new person, you're just fumbling through this thing for a while. Totally. And I think that that point explicitly plays into maybe what we could pivot to here in the conversation, which is the tension in the terms of the decision space between the dual end conditions, right? And how it creates this. And what I say, what I'm saying here is there's the game can end when there's two out of the 10 treasures are left on the board or when the tiles run out. So early game, and we experienced this in the two-player game that we just played, there's this really intense pressure to get out and spread your kingdoms out to try to snatch up treasures as they're quickly accessible in, in nearby positions. Um, and the reason for that is because treasure cubes are just always amazing. Those points are so valuable because they give you flexibility and an inflexible system like Tigris and Euphrates, where you don't always have the agency to pursue the type of points that you want. Having the cushion of those wild points is such a massive benefit. So it pushes players to spread their kingdoms out, to spread thin and play aggressively and move across the board. But by doing that, you create these thin kingdoms, these narrow kingdoms, which themselves then are vulnerable to both catastrophe tiles, which can break them into these sort of smaller disparate kingdoms. And then they're already weaker to war potentially because a lost war in one color, if there's a tile in a pivotal place, it can sort of sequester other tiles from that kingdom and have it be picked apart in interesting ways. So there's this real tension in the early game between making the decision to push out and get those near invaluable treasure tokens and play a little bit more slowly and defensively. And then also this sort of in-between state where you are expanding out and you're almost gesturing there's this thing in a lot of tile placing Reiner Canizia games, Jake, that came up in one of in our game we just played, where I put down one tile towards a treasure in the top right. I, I had started at uh, N5, the starting point in the northeast um, below the river, and Jake started uh, above that and to the left. So we started pretty close to each other. And I placed just one tile, which was enough momentum towards the treasure in the very top right that I could sort of ignore it until Jake sort of gestured at going in that direction by placing a tile. And then I was like able to jump in and complete it, which is interesting, right? Like I, I put half of my effort, which was just enough to dissuade future decision, like your ability to get it, um, like right. creating pressure on the board. Yeah. I, I felt like early in our game, it was just this game, a game of like chicken where, you seem to have a better position for accumulating treasures earlier. And I was just like making myself as skinny and wide as possible to like try and race. And like, almost like I was just like begging you to attack me because I didn't want to attack you um, because of just like the inherent risk in that. So, I mean, it's just, it is fascinating, but to the point, I guess, trying to stay on track with the treasure tokens. I, I just wanted to add in, when you think about how valuable these are in the game, it's like not just that the resource you get from them is the most impactful resource in the game. It also is just like the most, because my brain always goes to efficiency in mm. board games. It's also just like the most efficient action you could take in this game, uh, just from like uh, cost per action, like little analysis, because not only do you get 
an extra resource, right? You're getting two resources from placing a tile as opposed to just the one you normally get. But you're also getting the crazy, powerful, wild resource. But you're also adding an extra red Mm. to your kingdom. So it's like you're really getting like 3x for doing that. Uh, So yeah, I mean, the incentive is so huge to go for these tiles, especially early on in the game for all of those reasons. Um, And and it it creates that situation, I think, um, that we found ours that's probably pretty typical, though you can't ever say anything definitively is typical in this game, uh, where you're either going to be racing for these treasures and or setting yourself to make a profitable attack on somebody who is. And one of the real risks in terms of the decisions there, too, is the treasures are always going to be useful unless pursuing them means you end up in a war that puts you far enough behind that the treasures, the the you fall behind enough that the lead can't be made up, right, by the benefit of where you come back, um, which is, it's, yeah, I don't know. That tension is really good, and I think it factors into all the decisions in the game. Another instance here is the monuments, which I think early on, it's very risky to to build monuments, especially if you're building uh, in your own kingdom, right? Because you're taking tiles that potentially represent your ability to dissuade people from coming to war at you, flipping them over, losing them. So you're much more vulnerable to wars to trade in for future income that someone could come and just snatch up. But at the same time, if you can manage to have a position where you hold a monument for three or four or five turns that all of a sudden becomes the most efficient action in the game, period, because you just got five free points. And if you did that in two colors, that's equal to like, that's t- so that'd be 10 points, which is equal to five turns of placing tiles. So it's like having five extra turns of placing tiles in those colors, um, which itself is so huge. And then whether or not that makes sense, not only depends on if people are going to fight wars with you, but also how long the game is going to be. Because if it ends quickly because of spreading out from treasures, maybe the monument plays don't make a lot of sense. They get snatched up through war. So that's really the tension that the decisions exist in, right? And figuring out how to untie that whole knot really is the game and the puzzle you're constantly trying to solve. Right. And each and in each of those things too, right? It's, I think... When you think about the chorus game, it comes back to timing, right? It's timing when to be going for those treasures, timing when to be starting wars, and timing when it's worth it to get the monument. Yep. And because timing is so key, uh, I think it kind of brings us back into our, uh, a conversation about tempo here as well. Mm. Um, because as you say, right, you can almost create like little tiny tempo gates here, like you said, by just making one step towards a treasure okay, that makes it so you're ahead there and your opponent has to be, uh, based on the situation, has to be like really careful about continuing in that way, trying to race you to it. Um, Similarly, if you're building a monument uh, and you put three monument tiles down, that almost, and and just leave it there for a turn, like that could almost force your opponent to take an off-tempo play to just fill it in with an odd color uh, mm. just to prevent that. And that was something that I considered doing in our play when you were going for that uh, monument sort of in the bottom left of the board. I really thought about just spending one turn of just like, I'm just going to stick a tile in there just to to mess with you. And I didn't do it. But in hindsight, I think that I definitely should have because you were just able to get so many <laughs> points off of that monument just sitting there. So this is a, a strategic consideration that's developed in a lot of the games that I've been playing with people in the decision space discord, which is I fell behind in the mid game. So what Jake is talking about is I ran away to a corner of the board really far away. He knocked my leaders off the board and I really needed black and blue points. So I put my black leader down in a corner and built a monument in this tiny little kingdom. The kingdom was just a red tile and my black and blue leaders and a monument. Um, and that gave me enough income to get back. And Jake saying, you know, I should have just blocked the potential to even make that. And I think that plays like that are so cool, right? Because it's a way that you're interacting with the systems. You basically would have given me like, oh, here's a green point, Brendan. But you would have, by blocking, my black leader was there. So it's powers that I get points for whatever tile is placed there. Jake gives me one green point, but takes away the potential to get what ended up being like six black and blue points. And I think that for me, Jake, those sorts of decisions are what make Tigris and Euphrates so interesting. There was another similar one, which I wasn't able to do it. But when Jake was really expanding, I had already gotten all four of my leaders down on the board. And sometimes in games of Tigris and Euphrates, your leaders are 
co-mingling with other players, leaders in different kingdoms. And the way our board state developed, Jake and I basically had a kingdom to ourselves. And I, he was expanding uh, out, but he hadn't placed many green tiles yet. So he was trying to get out to this treasure in the top left of the board um, without a lot of green. So I considered maybe moving my green leader such that if he connected the two kingdoms, he'd force a war. And if I had had a bunch of green tiles in my hand, maybe that that would have dissuaded him enough. And Or if he had taken the risk and gone for it, it would have cleaned his leader off the board and cost him a lot in tempo and gained me a treasure. So I think for me, what really sets Tigris and Euphrates decision space apart, and I said this a little bit in the past episode, but just reflecting as on the games as we played and some of the plays that we're discussing now is the potential for these sort of creative plays where you've never considered like, oh, I can interact with the system in this way until the board state becomes just perfect and then you do it. And I think that if we pursued this game and played it you know, 500 times, certain tactics I think would be, become named and you would have this idea of like, this is the time to do that monument rush where you just like flee to the corner and build a monument and, and blocking them in some ways. And there's ways because of the passive pressure that you can create between things to to make it such that you're forcing your opponent into a decision between picking their poison in terms of how they want to interact with you, which I think is sort of the the next next level of decisions, right? Like half committing towards two good paths, and then it puts your opponent in a position to disrupt only one of them. Um, totally. Yeah, it's so interesting, like to what you're saying about like named tactics and stuff like you, I could absolutely see Tigers and Euphrates being a game like chess where you have like, Oh, that's the, the burn side open right there where you go for, you know, green and black on the N five starting space. And then like from there, you're going to be building northeastward. you know, like that. But the thing that's so different about it, of course, is like, it's not, like the board is set, you know, if you're the starting player, you could always start with the exact mm. same turn, the exact same move, but your hand is going to be different. Right. Yep. Uh, so it, you, it can't, the game can both can and cannot have canned openings in the same way that chess does. But I do think you're right that like, if uh, Tigers and Euphrates existed in a competitive circuit in the same way, or even remotely close to chess, like, because I, I, there would be things like that. Because I'm really interested, you know, from like super experienced players, like what is the best way to attack this starting space um, and and so on and so forth. Because it seems like there must be more, more or less optimal plays, but I'm just not there yet. So like when you start in N5 there and you're like, oh, you started kind of close to me. It's like, yeah, I did. But like I could have picked anywhere. You know, I don't have like at this point, like the decision space even in that first turn of what you're starting feels huge and it feels super impactful to me, but like, I couldn't even begin to tell you like why this is better. I think I just chose a a place close to you because I was like, I'm just going to like make him uncomfortable and try and force him to attack me. But is that better or not? I don't know. Yeah, no, I think that's really interesting. So one thing that one we haven't talked about opening decisions so i'm really glad we got to this and within the meta this is probably important context for conversation of playing each other and playing people in our discord on board game arena as we've been exploring this game together uh n5 as the starting position on the board has really developed as sort of the optimal starting position that people are constantly going for and within our strategies we're looking for ways to contest that and i think that my sense for the game jake is that all starting positions could probably be played to a to an end game position that is winning. But one of the really attractive things about an, the N5 start is it's a red tile that only exposes two of its sides. The other two are blocked by a river, which means you can place your leaders there and ensure that no one can jump in on that kingdom without putting a red tile down first, which is suboptimal if you don't already have a leader down. Um, and then your location that you start out in that game, K1, is another awesome starting location because it's close to some other treasures and only has three opening spaces, whereas some of the other common opening ones like I-7, that's the one in the very middle of the board that's completely open. It has all four sides open. And I think that these positions in the middle are really good, but they also 
especially in higher play, player count games, ensure that you'll be in the center of the board, which as tension builds, ensures that you're going to be a part of a lot of conflicts and it's very risky. So one of the things that I like about the decision space of Tigris and Euphrates is it allows you to sort of opt into when you think conflict will happen or could happen. Um, like you placed really fairly close to me starting off, which meant we were going to have an early conflict in the game. It almost destined it. But it, Games can play out differently where we end up on different sides of the boards and we build towards this mid game or I guess more late game conflict and figuring out how to play to that coming decision point is a really interesting aspect of the game that I think as we played more, we would understand what an opening hand of six tiles suggests going for an opening in X position or Y position, right? Definitely. And it, again, like the game we played so contingent on that. And I was thinking, like, I boxed myself in here. Like, I, I was surprised that you eventually chose to attack me. So I wonder how that, that same game plays out if you just never start a conflict. Mm-hmm. Which, when you did, it was, like, profitable for you. You won the, the that first initial skirmish. Um, but I but, lost the know, war. <laughs> yeah. But if you had uh, just continued to just, like, play conservative, box out, get the treasures below you you know you kind of had to kind of control the board yeah what what happens there if if we just choose to play like a totally conflict reverse game and i think you know that's what's fun and exciting about playing this game over many 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 plays maybe now would be a good time we talked a lot about wars and revolts in the last episode but maybe now it would be a good time to talk about some of the decisions in them and some of the ways to evaluate you have to evaluate them because what you just mentioned so from my perspective the way i generally try to approach making decisions in tiger student euphrates is that i'm very war averse because i think the risk of going to war is high right it's you're adding the tiles in your opponent's hand. You don't have information about the tiles that they have and you stand to lose a lot, but there's definitely a tipping point. And in that game with you, Jake, that we just played, I think I saw an opportunity to really weaken your early starting position. You'd put down a green leader. There was one tile. I think I had a green leader in a position where I had four or five down. I had a hand of green tiles that I didn't really want to play because I'd already gotten some greens on the board. So I figured I could use an early war as an opportunity to cycle my hand without, right? So like I'm growing in green tiles. I don't want them because I already have green points. My choices are take a turn to discard them or start a war, which will give me the opportunity to discard them. And that has a higher upside. So I made the decision to do it and I won that war, but then you won one of the other wars within that because we were all interconnected. And that was what sort of kicked the stool out from under me. Right? Right. Yeah. I can't remember exact. Yeah. I thought I feel like you won two wars there and knocked two of my people out. But and this is where I get like my inexperience of the game isn't clear uh, because it seemed like a very good move for you. I was like, dang it, that's really bad for me. Yeah. But by doing that, somehow it like kind of opened up things for me in a way I can't explain. Um, but like it didn't take long in this instance for me to kind of quickly rebuild, retake territory. Uh, and then kind of come after you. I feel like part of it was that, so to pull off that play, because Jake had built his kingdom to be really narrow as he pursued those treasures early. It was just a snake. It was like a one by X (laughs) kingdom across the whole top of the board. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which left you open to me playing a catastrophe tile, breaking it into pieces, and then creating this really opportunistic war where I could gobble you up, right? So I did that. And I even said to Jake at the time, this feels like a really mean play, but I'm going to do it because it feels the most optimal. So I do it. And I'm very averse also to giving up my catastrophe tiles early on. Maybe that is the the advantage was you just didn't get enough for your Value. catastrophe Ex- tile. Yeah, Exactly. And and that's the question, right? That you only have two. What value are you creating by using this catastrophe tile that has the the greatest uh agency impact of plays potentially in the entire game you only get two of them and i think that the answer is is that i played those down but then you took a risk and you played your next two catastrophe tiles back to back your only two back to back really quickly and you were able to come out of that mid-game war in a position where you gained so much you kicked three of my leaders off the board and i just 
everything was connected into a, a greater kingdom at that point, such that it made it way harder for me to use my one catastrophe tile to do something similar back to you. So you basically use, you time the catastrophes on how the kingdoms on the board would combine and figured out the right decision and moment to, to spend those. And you just got a way bigger payout in the end, right? Yeah. I, and I think that was probably like my coolest moment play that I've done in Tigers of Euphrates so far. And it also speaks to the decisions you make in wars. Um, and I think this was also something that was really difficult for me to wrap my head around playing the game first is like the sequencing that happens mm. in wars where it's actually when uh, two kingdoms come together, right? You proceed with wars of all the leaders that that are sharing a color now, right? So there's two blue leaders, two red leaders, two green leaders. Uh, they all theoretically will do wars. Um, but as the attacking player, you get to pick the order, which is a huge advantage. Uh, not as great as the fact that ties go to the defender. But in this instance, I was able to leverage that really well uh, because I played down a catastrophe tile that actually didn't significantly weaken you uh, very much in that kingdom. It just took away like a single red tile or something, but it made it so that when I sequenced my attacks, like I knew I could win two wars or had a really high likelihood because I had uh, those tiles in my hand and more of those colors on your board. So maybe it was blue and green. So like I won both those. And then when you're green person or, and then like you pick the tiles up when you lose. Uh, and then that carved up your kingdom more, making it so that I could also successfully attack the black leader based on the catastrophe tile and, and what was like remaining uh, in, the from, kingdom. in the kingdom. And then that ended the conflict at that point because that one was gone. So I didn't even have to proceed with fighting with red, which would have been the biggest risk to me. And then at that point in the game, I thought, okay, I'll just keep Jake out of red. Uh, if I can just keep Jake off red points, then that'll be the win. And then quickly my red leader was displaced and Jake had built a monument in the middle of the board. I actually, he, he started building a monument uh, of blue. There's only one location on the board, right? Where you can build a blue monument up in that North East corner. And I sort of said cheapestly, okay, it'd be really great for Jake. I only have a red leader in this kingdom. He has a black, green and blue leader. I'll play a blue tile down and make this the blue red monument, which would be great for me. And within two turns, you had disposed me through a revolt. And all of a sudden you were getting income for what turned out to be an action that I had taken. So I think you're totally right that you played that mid game really well. And I love that we talked about in uh one thing we loved about this is people are going to be like, how are you bringing up a feast for Odin right now? It's like as far <laughs> away from this game as you get. But one thing we love about a feast for Odin in the decision space there is how you can puzzle out on your board on your turn with your tetronomos uh, or your polyominoes. And you don't have to set it until the end of the turn. So that gives you something to be doing with the decision space always. And I feel like in Tigris, one thing you get to do is you could just constantly study the board state and think about how wars might be able to carve up certain kingdoms in certain ways as you go. And because the board state is changing enough, it's sort of this constantly shifting puzzle that you can like take in and let wash over you. And sometimes you sort of see an opportunity um, and you sort of, you go for it, like with a catastrophe tile being placed. It's truly kind of crazy how much a single tile placement can change everything, yeah. right? If you have a big part of your kingdom connected by one tile, that means a catastrophe can get rid of it all uh, and, and eliminate that entire segment's benefit to you. Um, but a single secondary piece is all of a sudden changing the calculus completely. Like that, that window has closed completely. And early in this game, I thought I had an opportunity to, where I was like, I could put this catastrophe tile down and attack, and I think I would win, but I just don't know. And I just I was like, I'll just keep building. And then the next turn, you like sh completely shored up your defense to that plan. And it was just, at that point, it was like totally off the table to me. I was just like, dang, that door, like that opportunity door, like window, it closed on me just so fast. That was kind of cool too. Yeah, that is cool. I think that uh, in thinking about all the games we've covered, I'm not sure that there's another decision offered by any of the games we've ever covered, like the catastrophe tiles, where it is so, so, so potentially impactful to the given decision space. Like if you think about impact to the outcome of the game, uh, 
in terms of decision points? Like what's the average as you spread across all the decisions you make in a game of like castles of Burgundy, a lot of, I think the average of the impact of the game state is fairly similar throughout all the decisions that you make. And in Tigris and Euphrates, because of the way the catastrophe tiles are and the way that wars work, you basically have the impact of decisions that you make clustered on these really big moments where the game right. invites you to make this decision that's going to fundamentally reshape the game in such a way that you have this, this moment where it is memorable because of the impact to all the decisions that come after it. So from a game design perspective, I think that that's just really cool and something that this game illustrates so well that other games that we've played in the past don't do as well. Um, you have other memorable moments in games, but in Tigris, it's so much tied to player agency. Um, and the fact that it works, right? The fact that it, there's the ability to, to come back and mount comebacks and that you don't have these crazy runaway leader situations is sort of the incredible aspect of this design, um, in part because of the way scoring works. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I really belabored the point that like wars can feel incredibly punishing and impactful in the in the entire in the entire decision space. And I still believe that, you know, one mistimed war, especially in a multiplayer game or, or you know, a big loss can really, you know, if not totally knock you out of contention, like make it very, very, very difficult for you to claw back. Again, it's kind of like I want to use the analogy of like chess, right? Where it maybe is maybe losing a war isn't like throwing away your queen, but it, it's like throwing away like a rook or a bishop or some, a, an important piece. It's like, okay, I've just made my job a lot harder here. <laughs> um, and I think that kind of fits pretty well uh, to, to what I was thinking, but it's nice having these monu or these catastrophe tiles uh, also present in a decision space that enable that allows for such impactful swingy turns uh, because I think it does kind of balance out a little bit nicely where I don't know, it might feel like too over centralizing if the game itself and the decision itself like didn't on its own allow for hugely swingy and impactful moves outside of it. But yeah, I'm trying to think of other things like it. I mean, maybe there's some games that have like one, time powers like oh, you can use this only once like use it right i feel like i've heard about that but none are are really springing to mind that manifest in the same way as the catastrophe tiles in tigris i think one interesting thing about it too is it creates this tension that's sort of inverse what i've seen in some of the later tiling games from reiner canizia so babylonia jake has this mechanism uh, in Tigris and Euphrates, you can only ever play two tiles on a turn, period. No way around. Yeah. Right? It's, um, yeah. <laughs> it's so annoying. Like, just, it's what so it sometimes is. like, man, if I could just put three tiles down, it would be so good for me. You know? Right. If you could play more tiles, right, then you have a greater ability to impact what happens in the future. But the catastrophe tile is kind of about undoing the impacts of what's already been done which is a really interesting way to interact with the game that's harder. I think we don't experience that in a lot of decision spaces as much because I think games are, we typically play more conflict averse games that are afraid of undoing. And this undoes in such a specific way, whereas a lot of other, like Babylonia, Jake, has this mechanism where you can play, uh, you either play two tiles a turn or as many farmers as you have. So in that game, you're not undoing progress. You're just creating moments where you run really far ahead, right? If I have mm. five farmers and I can farmer rush to the board, all of a sudden I've like barfed my farmers across the land and that's really reshaped what will happen. But I think what sets Tigris apart because of the catastrophe tile really is the ability to undo the consequences of past decisions, reshape the board, and people have made decisions based on the assumption of certain tiles being in certain places. And that's what creates this like really interesting high agency shift that even the like playing down a bunch of tiles doesn't quite get to for yeah. better or worse. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just worth pointing out like how much that shapes the decision space in this game, because a lot of what we are talking about earlier with the tempo relating to getting to treasure tiles, the tempo relating to getting to, uh, monuments and even like starting wars or it's not necessarily you have two tiles it's like you have two actions yeah so it's like so much of the game like okay what i really want to do is pick up my like at the end of the lot the game we just played i wanted to discard my hand pick up the green leader and place it at for a revolt and of course i can only ever do 
two of those three things that like I so desperately need to do. So the whole game becomes about like, okay, well, how do I most efficiently make my way to this play that requires more than two steps uh, without giving you the opportunity to uh, on your turn interrupt what I'm trying to do and make it. So that's like not profitable to me anymore because if I just pick up my green leader uh, and then discard my hand, but then you use your turn to shore up your, you know, the green leader from revolt or whatever, then it's like, okay, now I've like wasted an entire Mm. action. Uh, And I think the same thing manifests when you're like going for the treasures, right? It's like, okay, I'm three tiles away from that treasure. So I, you know, a lot of the game is like, okay, I'll put like one here for now. But if you never kind of end up going back to that because you get kicked out of the kingdom or not, like it's probably not a very efficient turn for you. Uh, So I think like finding those opportunities to work towards these bigger goals that require more than two steps without giving up efficiency and tempo to your opponent uh, is a big part of what's going on here. I feel like this is the point where it it most naturally fits to talk about what we were talking about some in following up after last episode two, which is that these are the aspects that make Tigris and Euphrates a risk management game, right? Ultimately, Mm -hmm. because you can only ever by placing tiles, get two points in two colors a turn that sets this like baseline for potential action. Uh, Every turn you can get two victory points more or less not necessarily points that matter if it's in colors that you don't have but it dangles those those carrots of but if you put down a monument all of a sudden the efficiency of your turns spikes potentially because if you have a monument in two colors that you have all of a sudden you're getting four points a turn or add another one all of a sudden you're getting six points a turn or add another one right um and wars are the same way where it's like oh in this one turn i could potentially get five ten twelve points um so it and someone is going to get those points probably in a game of Tigris. It's very unlikely, right? If everyone just sits at the table and takes two points a turn, almost certainly like whoever gets the most treasure will win. Um, and someone is going to be in a position where they didn't get the most treasure. So they're going to be incentivized to pursue points in one of these other ways, either by putting monuments on the board or by starting wars. So those are inevitable. So because those the risk-taking becomes inevitable and because they create interactive moments, um, it shifts the decision space to when is it the right time to engage with getting points from the game in this type of way, um, which is really interesting because in a lot of games, the game is figuring out what the most optimal points on the table are. And in Tigris, it's figuring out what the most optimal way to get points in this play of the game are. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. I'm not, I think generally I'm with you. I'm a little bit confused about your very last point, like the distinction between Tigris and other games of getting points on the table. Like in a game of the lost ruins of Arnak, the, the certainty of points that are down the the ability to pursue certain paths and know that if you accomplish x you will get y points is pretty certain in tigris Mm -hmm. and euphrates you can know that you can pursue x but you don't always know how many points you will get from pursuing x right if i start a war i don't necessarily know if i'm going to get the points that i might get or if i build a monument i don't know how many turns of points i'm going to get from it so it's a lot of games, mm-hmm. there's a lot more certainty with which comes from your actions. Like, oh, thank God I've completed this contract and it's 20 points in my bank. Right, exactly. Yeah. And there's certainly games that sort of have taste of this, but I think that's what sh- changes how the decision space feels and also what led to a lot of your frustration the last time is that there's the efficient paths are hidden behind uncertainty. And the game does force you to interact with that uncertainty. and places the skill of the game and knowing when to do so yeah definitely and i think like at the end of the day uncertainty is i mean it makes this game what it is right it's what makes this game a risk management game uh, as opposed to chess but like also you know a game where that is so that is like chess in many ways uh but you know you might lose on a on a check because you know you rolled wrong or whatever like you know what i mean it's like chess with added uncertainty is going to be an acquired taste like that's not going to be something that appeals to everybody um and you know i don't know like look you come at kinesia people are gonna 
respond in kind, right? Like I understood I was like going to be inviting criticism with my take in my experience. And, you know, I stand by the experience I had learning this game in so many ways. You know, it was hard. It was frustrating. uh, And I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say. Um, but yeah, I know. I, I definitely think that's fair. And I don't want you to feel alone in feeling like some of the uncertainty at the heart of the game is frustrating because I think frustrating moments ultimately do come out of that. And I think it's totally fair to like a level of certainty in the games that you play and to be more comfortable with those games and maybe to not have the uncertainty so directly tied to conflict. And and that's just different flavors of game that offer different types of decisions. And it doesn't mean that one is more right or one is more wrong than the other. And I definitely don't think we should be saying, oh, this is better or worse. And I don't think that's what we were doing. But I do think that there is the potential for it to, to feel worse. But I think, like a good example, Jake, in the game that we were just playing, the, the way the game say ended up, right? There was a position where Jake was going to win unless I took this really risky revolt. And if I had four red tiles in my hand, the, the way that it played out, if I mm-hmm. had four red tiles in my hand, I win the game. And if I have three, Jake wins the game. I had three, right. Jake won the game. And I think that feels, if we just look at that one decision point, it kind of feels like, wow, I've played this whole game and it comes out of this one coin <laughs> right, right. right? But I think that the beauty of Tigris and how where I come to it from is sort of saying, okay, I'm sure I made a lot of decisions that led to that being my way back into the game. And I lost the the chance, the one chance that I'd left myself. So what could I have done differently to not end up in that position, which is fun for me. But I think that the flip side is when that outcome doesn't happen and I win from behind, that does feel kind of bad. Like if I win an out that probably you should have won the game anyway, I can see that being frustrating. But at the same time, that's exciting and it leads to opportunities for players of differently matched skill to play each other, which I think could create a competitive environment that was even more exciting than a game like sort of chess or go where we might not be perfectly matched, but there's enough uncertainty in the game that the outcome is still uncertain in a way that's tremendously memorable and exciting. Absolutely. But as a player it can suck. Yeah. And I think like while we're on this point, not to belabor it since we already had a whole episode talking about this. Uh, one comment we received on our Discord by uh, W.S. Gossett um, sort of made this point about seeing board games existing on two axis axes, uh, one being sort of like high to low player interaction and one being like high to low randomness. And Tigers and Euphrates is a game that exists in like the upper quadrant of high randomness and high player interaction. And that is going to be... Uh, you know, a, a something that's go- comes down to personal preference. And I think like just for me um, and what I enjoy, that is one that is more of an acquired taste. Like, I don't think I'm incapable of appreciating and enjoying these games, but it's certainly, uh, I just thought that was like a really well put point. And it kind of made me think about it a little bit differently. If you're like, you know what, like maybe this is just not speaking to me in sort of the game axes I enjoy more. Um, so I, I think maybe to you, listener, if you're still listening to all this, like, should I do Tigers and Euphrates? I think I think that is it. Definitely fits in that category um, of games, which many people like, and and many people might kind of feel frustrated by at times. Yeah, if those moments are going to excite you, I think it's going to be a huge home run. And if those moments are going to make you feel like your time was wasted or not respected by the game, then probably run in a different direction. Jake. Yes. We probably should talk about the scoring. I think maybe we should end with that. Okay. Tigers Euphrates famously has the, and I've even heard it described as sort of like the Knizia scoring mechanism where your end game victory points is equal to your least of any one scoring category. So you can score points in four different categories, colors, red, blue, black, green, and your points at the end of the game is equal to your least. Um, what I'll, I'll kind of throw it to you first, like what is the important thrust of this in terms of the decision space? Uh, do you like it? You know, what are your thoughts? I feel like the important thrust of this is that it forces you to make moves that you otherwise wouldn't make if your points were just your points across the board, right? Because you can find yourself in positions where you have to pursue a certain color. So that could mean I have to go for a monument in this way, or I have to take a risk on this war, um, which I really like because it kind of 
this system creates emergent and variable objectives within the decision space, right? Where I can interact in with my points and in a way where I can sort of say, okay, I need to be doing this at this point in the game because I have to shore this up. It kind of signposts organically what my next objectives are because I can look at all of my points, compare them and say, priority number one is getting more green points because I'm the lowest in green. And I like that it sort of guides you through the decisions in the game, which would could otherwise be even more massive by giving you this easy heuristic of how do I get points? What do you think? Yeah, I, I do like it too. I mean, I, I think it's important. You can pretty easily picture a degenerate game state where yeah yeah yeah. if 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 it was any other thing if it was equal to your most in any one category just like your combined total points where it's just like yep i'm the red guy i've got all i've got 20 red tiles in this kingdom and i'm just adding to it and you know there's nothing anyone can really do about it um so that would be very bad so i do think it is necessary for that i think it also is something that just like makes the decision space itself a little bit fuzzier and just adds to sort of the mental bandwidth required to map out sequences in the game. Yeah. Where even at the end of our game, we're playing online. So board game arena is helping us track all our scoring. Um, It's, it's kind of, it kind of feels a little tricky to be like, okay, so I've got 10 in this 11 in this 10 in this 15 in this I'm getting, two red or I'm getting a red, a blue and a black at the end of the night point from the monuments. And I've got the three gold. So like, w- wait, how many points do I have exactly? And what should I be going for? You know what I mean? Like it just adds that like complexity. And I am, I have not played this game in person on the table, but I imagine if I'm just like looking at cubes in front of me. It could add a lot of like, uh, you know, like where's my like abacus. So I could like count these things up. Um, so yeah, I think like that element of it actually perhaps it sounds so easy and straightforward, but I think the actual thrust of it is to make it like a little bit like I do think that is something that makes this game actually seem like feel and actually be a little bit less approachable mm-hmm. um, than a more traditional scoring system. And I think that was kind of a surprise to me and unexpected to me in learning this game because like you if it's a rule you can explain in one second or five seconds or whatever you'd think that okay well that's going to be like pretty straightforward uh in practice but i think it actually is more complex than that which is good for creating an interesting decision space and it's also just kind of like a little bit of it i don't want to oversell it's not like it's impossible to figure out how many points you have um but it's definitely something that kind of adds what i would say like is a surprising complexity to this game i think a big part of that too is why kinesia decided to have the scoring be hidden in the game and obviously you can play this game with open scoring that is a variant oftentimes when jake and i were playing online we would play with open scoring because it's easier to understand the consequence of your decisions Um, but I, i think it necessitates that in a lot of ways and one of the sort of enduring things about the game that i think most people find frustrating and that i find a little bit frustrating too is that it's a open information game with closed scoring and kinesia especially in some of his 90s games sort of relied on trackable information that if you track the game kind of tear loosens a little bit at the seams um and it wouldn't here you can make informed interesting meaningful decisions it's great when you know what everyone's score is but the upkeep of doing that in real time would just suck so it just sort of says just don't worry about it which i like i don't mind um but i think it strips away a tiny bit of the elegance to the point that i like the game with open information slightly more yeah, I think it's interesting too in when it when you talk about like player counts because at two players I really appreciated it. Yeah, uh, just being open like it's so like a two player game is always going to be like so it means zero not so zero sum just zero sum. <laughs> yeah, um, and so it's nice to like like okay we're having a zero sum game let's just like have it uh, and I feel like I probably would care a little bit less in like a four player game where it's just like okay like i don't really need to be confronted with exactly you know i don't necessarily want to or be confronted with exactly how many points in each color every single other person has and like now i feel like i'm having to like try and factor that in before making a decision so like i'm sort of okay in that situation um but yeah i do think in a two-player game i'd rather i'd rather just know than be guesstimating and in part, that's because like this game is still 
already so hard for me you know <laughs> like it's not like uh you know a game where i feel like oh like because scoring's open like this is obviously the optimal play there is no obvious optimal yeah play. yeah yeah what's your favorite player count jake um that's a good question i still i think that um i would recommend learning this game at two players mm. i felt like in the two-player game that we just had um I was, you just get more opportunity to have feedback. Like you make a play and you're like, oh, I put that tile there thinking this would happen and it never happened. Uh, and and so like I'm learning a lesson from that or, you know, and you just have more opportunities to make plays, see the board develop as a re- result of your action. So I think that's probably the best way to learn it where things just change and are so incredibly chaotic and just like, uh, exponentially more complicated in multiplayer games. I also think that in multiplayer games, that's where like a lot of the frustration I felt like where I feel like, oh man, when I'm down, I'm getting like beat upon. I think that's also like in a two player game, it's like, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> like, of course your opponent's going to be going for you because it's zero sum. And that's what I signed up for. But like when it's a four person game that opens up, or a three-person game, right? That opens up this whole like extra ele- feel bad element where it's like, well, I'm already losing, and you're like attacking me instead of like this other person that's doing well. Like you jerk, you know? Yeah. Not that not to say that that like is anyone's wrong for doing that. It might be the most optimal play for them in that time. And you might have a, both have a different sense of if it is if you are actually losing and or just based on where the tiles are maybe that player thinks that the board state is going to shift in this way that makes you're in a better position for the late game than they are um i don't know so maybe all that can together i like it more at two players yeah um, which is kind of weird for me because i'm like really uh like outside of like dual games i'm like three or four players almost always um so there's another one defying expectations in that way as well what about you i really like it at two i think that there's a lot of room to play the game uh differently it really clearly illustrates some of the nuanced interactions that can happen in terms of how linked our scoring actually is based on how the kingdoms are relating to each other on the board if our leaders are in our uh, are in kingdoms by themselves or if they're intermixed um i really i like the game at three and the dynamics that come with more players on the board. And I like how the board, um, the board feels, I mean, you play the same number of tiles, no matter what throughout the game, but I think that your position feels different when there's more people building in different directions and have different objectives playing out. And I I think for me, four can feel a little bit cluttered, a little clogged up, uh, a little bit complex and that there's just not quite enough room to pursue different things. So I think I like it at two and three the most. I don't think it's bad at four, but I do think that there's a reason that Babylonia is not like Tigris and Euphrates. If it's similar to sort of any of the games that's from this era it's more similar to samurai but it does take lessons from tigris and euphrates i think and it scales its board so you play on a smaller board of in with two players and then a slightly different smaller board with three and the full board with four in babylonia and i think in tigris and euphrates you really feel like the board is huge when you're playing with two players Um, right we didn't even really use all of it in our games so and i think partially i think the sweet spot for the board's design is three so i like it at three for that reason that makes sense your play in our game to get back in the game was like go hide somewhere far yeah. away from the board we were using like good luck with that in a four player yeah, game you can, there's right? no hiding yeah once you're once you get a few uh leaders knocked out like you're in big big trouble trying to get them back in in the mid late game you just have to look to revolts you can't pursue right. this sort of like other kingdom strategy yeah would yeah. you play Tigris and Euphrates again, Jake? Or are you good? Yeah. You're happy to say bon voyage. So when we do our rankings, I gave this game a 6.5 in the last episode. And you know what that means, the way I do my ratings, I know we've said this early on, but it's probably worth saying again, is we look at the Board Game Geek rating system 1 to 10. And what that is saying is not a rating of the, you know, I'm not trying to come up with some objective like number that like represents like the inherent value of something i'm looking at the rating system they all have these like little blurbs that 
uh, give a sense of kind of like how much I want to play the game at the given time. So like a six is okay game, some fun or challenge at least, will play sporadically if in the right mood. Seven, good game, usually willing to play. And I feel like I wanted to kind of say after this conversation, we just had a great play of it. Um, I kind of wanted to be like, all right, you know what? I'm going to bump my score up to a seven. But like looking at that, I really feel like right in between those two things. Like I do think it's a good game. And I think it's something that I'll play like sporadically if I'm in the right mood. And I that to me, that's right between six and a seven. Uh, so definitely I'll play it again. And I wouldn't be surprised if, if this game grows on me, I think sporadically will mean like I'm only playing it live from now on. I think the async nature of many of our plays, uh, it, it was part of the, a big part of the frustration for me and also just like made it so much harder to like learn mm. um, things about the game, which perhaps made me feel like, okay, I'm in this like purgatory of being a new player and not really improving. And so like, I'm constantly, you know, getting beat down and beat down and beat down forever <laughs> totally. uh, so yeah i think you know to answer your question yeah that's that's where i'm at with it um but i'm so glad that so many people are passionate supporters and continue to love this game after you know more than 20 years i feel like my closing thoughts are i think that if there's one thing that someone takes away from this podcast i hope that it would be that the in my mind the enduring legacy of tigers and euphrates is the potential for creativity and expressive plays to come through in a game that looks like a, a simple abstract and that its decision space is one that will continue to reward as much as it might frustrate and that the real triumph of the game is the way that it interlocks objectives and creates a dynamic objective dec decision space that shifts how players engage with the game every single time they play awesome well I think we did it. Our yeah, first it. ever two-parter. Uh, this was a big challenge to do this game. I feel proud. I feel glad that we gave this game its fair due. Um, I hope you do as well. And I hope that everyone listening enjoyed. As always, let us know what we got right, what we got wrong. Uh, and you can reach us on our Discord. Link is in the description. That's our online chat room where we're always hanging out. Uh, on Twitter at Decision SPA, Brendan's at Burnside BH. I'm at Jake Freed or Gmail at DecisionSpa at gmail.com. Next week, community questions. It's going to be so much fun. Get those questions in now if you want to be concluded. And thank you so much uh, to everyone that already has submitted questions. And in two weeks, Sushi Go. That's not a joke. We're really doing it. Okay. Have a good week, y'all. All right. Finally, a good game. <laughs> <laughs> Oh no. Bye. <laughs>